Hey guys, welcome to the Jesus Name News Podcast. I'm Larry and I got Derek here with me. This week we're talking about a, a super interesting topic. Um, something that I, I know I'm pretty excited to get into. Um, not because it's like necessarily an exciting place or anything, but we're going to talk about purgatory and uh, probably get into hell a little bit and uh, what the Bible says about these concepts and what it doesn't. And just as importantly, where and how these ideas developed. Yeah, I guess that's kind of where I pick up. And let me reiterate that some of these things will not necessarily be from the Bible or, well, at least the Protestant version of the Bible. And some of them are extra biblical entirely. Uh, some of them are pagan based. Uh, and Larry and I will probably have a paganistic answer to some of them because honestly, some of the stuff we are so enshrined and entrenched in paganism at, at, in some points that our answers, we've created answers <laughs> derived from paganism. So, yeah. And that's kind of my thing about this. And I know that Derek's going to kind of take us through this this week, but my expectations of this and when I'm like really kind of excited about this for is that we reject these ideas because we call them pagan and extra biblical and stuff. But like, you know, I, the Bible says a whole lot of things about what happens after we die. And we have our ideas currently of what is going to happen and what isn't going to happen are all over the map. And, you know, like, I don't think that we, I don't think that enough people really know why and where and how the ideas that we have in the modern times developed and what they come from and where they come from. And in order to really have a thought and to have a, a piece about what is coming, we have to understand them. It's kind of like when we talked about the mark of the beast or other things, it's like, if you really truly understand what the Bible is saying about these topics and the nature of God in relation to them, they don't have to be scary. No. And it's kind of like we've taken things from the Bible and we found the holes in them and we decided to fill them in. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of my summation of it, but purgatory, first of all, you have to, let's get the foundation. So this is from the uh, compendium of the catechism of the Catholic church, which was published in what, 2005, at least first published. So, they come up with two questions about purgatory that kind of summarize every, you know, what it is and how it kind of works. So what is purgatory? Purgatory is the state of those who die in God's friendship, assured of their eternal salvation, but who still need purification to enter into the happiness of heaven. The second okay. question. So real quick, just to clarify, because going by you know my 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 small amount of education on this my understanding was purgatory was where pretty much everyone went it was just a matter of or at least how it was taught back in the day and maybe we're i'm jumping ahead a little bit but this is making it sounds like it's only people who are kind of okay-ish according to them 
honestly, like, there's or is that kind of a gray area of what that even means? Yeah, so like, there's differing ideas on it. Uh, I mean, not. I don't even know if it's differing ideas. It's more just like differing information, like different sets of perspectives, I guess, out there about it. So it's one of those things that is solidified, but not solidified at the same time. So the second part of that purgatory question that the Catholic Church had or came up with and tried to answer was how can we help souls being purified in purgatory? which says, because of the communion of saints, the faithful who are still pilgrims on earth are able to help the souls in purgatory by offering prayers and suffrage for them, especially the Eucharist sacrifice. They also help them by almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance. You know, your typical run-of-the-mill Catholic stuff. So, yeah, and, and again, just my impression... It sounds very similar. I, I don't even mean this judgmentally. It just sounds similar to like what you see in Egypt, where you know they would put items in the tomb to help pay their way through the afterlife, or you know in Greek where they'd put I think Greece where they'd put like the coins on the eyes, and you know where they'd like supply with items to help pass through the afterlife easier. Yeah, and it's a similar idea to that. Just, I don't know, I guess just want to lay groundwork for kind of what this sounds similar to. Yeah, and I mean, you're right. I mean, in general, the origins of purgatory may be sought in the worldwide practice of praying for the dead and caring for their needs. That's the general idea of it. So the early Christians, or the early, let me say this, the early Orthodox which is to say Catholic Christian practice of the, of prayer for the dead, for example, was encouraged by a few things. Uh, I believe it's like four or five sets of scripture that I'm going to get into. So it's encouraged by the apocryphal story of Judas Maccabeus, which was the Jewish leader of the revolt against the tyrant Antiochus, the fourth epiphanies. He makes atonement for the idolatry. We'll get into that. And then you got the apostle Paul's uh, prayer for, uh, I believe his name is Oniferous. Uh, and then by the implication uh, in twelve and 30, Matthew 12 and 32, that there may be forgiveness of sins in the world to come. Uh, the parable of, you know, the leper and the rich man, Lazarus, uh, and Luke 16 and 19. And then you have uh, Luke 23, and 43 which is an interim period you know day of judgment thing so larry if you'll start us out i'm gonna let you read these scriptures uh if you'll start us out with like second maccabees 12 41 through 46 all right second maccabees 12 41 through 46 says they all therefore praised the ways of the lord the just judge who brings to light the things that are hidden Turning to supplication, they prayed that the sinful deed might be fully blotted out. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He then took up a collection among all his soldiers, amounting to 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide for an 
expiatory sacrifice. In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as he had the resurrection in mind. For if he were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. And if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus he made atonement for the dead that they might be absolved from their sin. Yeah, so here's a little footnote. <laughs> so that that is from like the, I believe it's the New American uh, edition. It's the N-A-B-R-E, I think. Yeah, I think they have one of those. Um, yeah, they it's because uh, I had to get like a Catholic Bible for one of my classes back in in uh when I went to secular college. So I think I have it like in a bin somewhere. Yeah, it's probably where it belongs. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, most of it's fine. I mean, it's a normal Bible with like twelve extra books. So I yeah. mean, you know, it's not a horrible translation. It's just <laughs> no, the translation itself is pretty okay, uh, but. <laughs> In the footnotes of the passage that Larry just read in Second Maccabees, the footnotes say this. This is the earliest statement of the doctrine that prayers and sacrifices for the dead are efficacious. Judas probably intended his purification offering to ward off punishment from the living. The author, however, uses the story to demonstrate belief in the resurrection of the just and in the possibility of expiation for the sins of otherwise good people who have died this belief is similar to but not quite the same as the catholic doctrine of purgatory and just for reference maccabees this is referenced as the earliest statement of doctrine that prayers and sacrifices should be made for the dead maccabees is written somewhere between 150 and 120 p 120 bc so not even really as old as most of our Old Testament books. Just for clarification, do did they ha- did Jesus have this? Like do we have it dated to then but it wasn't popular or was it like popular and widely used and seen as something in Jesus's time? Uh so that's an interesting question because a lot of these things that we kind of write off in Christianity were part of Jewish theology. Uh, this was more as seen as like a uh, like a histories, I guess, more than anything, okay. especially at this time in Jesus' time, which is only like 170 years after uh, it's written. So you can imagine like it would take some time for this to really gain you know, any sacred value of sorts. But yeah, I guess the other thing is that the history, there is historical accuracy to the events in these books, right? Yes. Okay. So like, I I mean, even like the, not necessarily the miraculous parts of them, but like the, the overcoming seemingly miraculous odds of some parts of it and stuff. For sure. Because I mean, mean, that's, that's that's kind of part of what makes them interesting. We'll, we'll talk about this when we get to like, the holiday season a little bit more but this is also where many jews derive the practice of hanukkah so uh just a side note there um but either way second to me like 
when I'm going back and I'm reading through this, there's an obvious bias toward praying for the dead. And almost in my opinion, the tone of the of Second Maccabees in general almost reads more as an epistle and almost like Luke's doctrine or Luke's writings, you know, Luke, the gospel of Luke and Acts. Uh, it reads almost more like that to me than your typical Old Testament deal that you got going on. Yeah. Uh, reading it, like my first impression reading it was just that it, it doesn't read like Jewish beliefs. No, it don't. It but, reads like modern Christian based, like Christian after Catholicism statements, like not even like early church father statements, like, you know, like, you know, modern stuff. It reads, and I, I you know, I get translations are a little bit of that probably, but like just the entire idea of it, like it, it sounds foreign to what I know of Judah, Jewish um beliefs and doctrine yeah yeah and i agree with you um but a lot of this a lot of what most christians are familiar with as far as jewish doctrine they're familiar with the torah you know the prophet the you know the psalms all those that's what they're familiar with but what they don't realize is that there was this undercurrent that we are not so familiar with that people like paul and Nicodemus and Gamaliel and Caiaphas would have been very aware of and would have passed off as legitimate Jewish doctrine. So I personally could see this as part of a Jewish, uh, albeit probably more of the mystic side of Judaism, not really the practical side of Judaism that we often talk about. This is more the mystical side of Judaism uh, that we could probably akin more to witchcraft uh, if most people were were just kind of looking at it that way, uh, which it is and it is not witchcraft. You can take your bet on that. But um, either way, it it has an obvious slant. And most Christians, especially in America, are going to write off Maccabees anyway. So any support from Maccabees doesn't work for a Protestant Christian, right? Yeah. So we write them off. We don't, we typically don't care about them, but the problem is that the historical side of things very much lines up, you know, the, and if you actually read Maccabees, there's a lot of good basic ideas in there. And I know that that's how, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. (laughs) And I know that that's how people go to hell. But at the same time, it it isn't so far off that I would just write it off. That's my problem with it. So we could say instead of going to hell, you go to purgatory for it? (laughs) Or your children's children should pray for you. Did, Did we walk into that? Was it too well set up, maybe? Maybe. Oh, maybe. <laughs> uh, so, but either way, like, I personally do not find this as positive support for purgatories just or praying for the dead in general because 
Ecclesiastes says, you know, the dead have nothing left. They, they know nothing. They can do nothing. And we kind of yeah. get, I mean, that, that's where I fall. I, the other thing is too, though, that in, in Jewish belief, right. The, the sins are pushed back for a year. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the idea of pushing back the sins of the dead is not entirely foreign. No. And you're just pushing it back for a year. Right. Because there's nothing that says that like your sin is suddenly pushed back forever when you die. It's still kind of seems like logically it's there still. But even beyond that, it's pushed back after the fact. So the, the yearly sacrifice happens. You die four months later. Those four months of things, they would wait until the next sacrifice to get pushed back. Well, and Tiffy, thank you. So, like, that. you know, I guess I just saying that, like, immediately after the fact is very different to me than, like, my ancestor who died in 1812 or something needs me to pray for them and, you know, do something to get them into heaven. Like, those are very different ideas. Uh, and I agree with you. Uh, the other thing that I run into with this is just simply, I don't, I, I can't really disconnect it from, and we'll talk about this next week. I can't disconnect it from the, from what some traditions and Judaism's talk about with, you know, eternal torment and eternal punishment. I can't separate it with that because some traditions say that you only do that for a year. And when you're saying sacrifices are only good for a year, that lines up. So this idea of praying for the dead, in my opinion, it, it's extra biblical. I don't, yeah. I don't see the merit in praying for the dead. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe I'm bad for that. But, you know, if it, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Yeah. Paul kind of makes it final, right? I mean, that's how I feel about it. It's very, death is a very final act. Like whatever happened, happened. You can't change it unless you repent it. So that kind of carries me on to another one of Paul's writings. If you'll get second Timothy one verse 15 through 18 for us. Okay. Second Timothy one, 15 through 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among who are Figulus and Harmogeny. We'll go with Harmogeny. Yeah. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. Yeah. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Ephesus. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and from here on out, just to save us some terrible pronunciation, I'm very sure. We're going to refer to him as Brother O. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like making it simple. So, according to Orthodox traditions, uh, on see, this is why I said Brother O. Brother O was one of the 70 disciples chosen and sent by Jesus to preach. 
They were chosen sometime after the selection of the 12 apostles, which happened in Luke chapter 10. Um, he was Bishop of Colophon, which is in Asia Minor, and later at Corinth. Both the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches hold that he did die martyr in the city of Perium, which is not that far from Ephesus. So here's the thing. <sighs> You can, you're looking at this and you're like, how in the world does this connect to purgatory and praying for the dead? Right. So the persecution of Christians during Nero's reign made Rome a very dangerous place for Christians. Right. So yeah. Paul praises Brother O for his hospitality, mm -hmm. kindness and courage. And he is it's contrasted with the other Christians in Asia who deserted Paul. Uh, in second Timothy one, verse 16, 13, Paul actually sends a greeting to the man's household in Ephesus and refers to the help he showed him. He showed Paul earlier in the area. So Timothy who led the Ephesian church was very familiar with these acts and Paul praises this man. And it's significant because it's written shortly before Paul's death as a final encouragement to Timothy. But now at this time, only Luke, which is referenced in chapter 4, verse 11 of uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy, Luke is the only one that remains with Paul. Because Paul speaks of this man, Oniferous, only in past tense. He wishes blessings upon the house, the family, and mercy in that day. Some scholars believe that this man had at this point died. He had been killed as a martyr, um, I guess, at Perea. So toward the end of the same letter, Paul sends greetings to Priscilla and Aquila in the house of Onifers again distinguishing the situation with this man from that of the still living Priscilla and Aquila. So they use this as once again, support that in prayers for the dead. I, I mean, that's really weak. <laughs> it's, it's a very, I mean, the thing is, is idea. the thing is, is he's just saying like, Hey, this person died and, May the Lord find mercy, which, by the way, without God's mercy, we are all destined for eternal separation from God. Okay. Exactly. So, like, saying that is more just saying, like, hey, he's dead. That's all we can do. Because the thing is, is I can't, I can't say, you know, he passed, but he's definitely going, like, he's definitely going to go to heaven. That just is that's always struck me as kind of arrogant. Like we can hopefully say something like that, like in a hopeful sense almost, but like to say it in any kind of absolute way is just weird to me because to say absolutely is just, it doesn't seem like our place. And, and so this to me just kind of sounds like Paul is just saying like he passed and he did right. And you know, the Lord hopefully is going to find mercy when he's before him exactly and I, that's kind of the side that i fall on yeah i mean and you know to me to me it, the 
I guess, breaking down of these like three words, household of Onesiphorus. Yeah. Like the breaking down of those three words, if you need that to support your doctrine, I don't think your doctrine is very strong. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just I'm just saying, and it's not because I I do think he was probably dead at that time. Otherwise, okay. he wouldn't have referenced his household. He would have referenced the man himself. Because that's how Paul wrote. Mm-hmm. But even still, it isn't like Paul is praying for this man. I agree with you. Like I cannot, I cannot make that leap because there's a ton of assumptions in between there. That's how I feel about it. like like you're making a ton of assumptions about this man or you know about what's going on at this time. Because we don't really, outside of extra biblical sources, we don't have any idea of where this man was, who he was, only that he helped Paul. That's where I land on it. I, I don't understand making the leap to prayers for the dead. Yeah. That's my problem with it. Yeah, so, 100%. I don't see it there. But now we kind of circle back around to what we talked about um was it last week i believe um reprobate reprobate where we referenced matthew yep. chapter 12 yeah so let's take another spin on this and <laughs> let's look at matthew chapter 12 verse 30 through 32 so we're again we're looking back kind of like it last week but we're taking a different spin on it yeah so jesus is talking whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whosoever or whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so take the I want you to read that very last part again after the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Yeah, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so this is another point with purgatory. The idea of it, right? So the idea that you can get forgiveness while passed on. Either in this age or in the age to come. Some say that Jesus is referring to the Jewish age and then the Christian age. However... If you couple this, and this is where it's going to sound like I'm supporting this, okay? But I have to do this because scripture interprets scripture, right? So we know that he's not saying this because if you'll get Mark chapter 3 and verse 28 through 30 for us, we'll see what he's actually saying. Yeah. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, so now the same thing is going on. It's it's honestly the same account, just different people writing it down. So instead of saying in this age or in the age to come, what ends up happening is that term age and that term eternal sin, or let's take the word eternal out of that and let's take the term age. 
Mm-hmm. They are the same Greek word. It is the word that we dis- that we derived eon from, which is simply eternity. A time that has really no end. So Matthew says, this sin shall not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. What he says in Mark says he never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. We got to be careful because if we're not mapping these two things together, you can arrive at the point that, oh, there's forgiveness beyond earth, beyond when I die. This is literally scripture interpreting scripture. It shows that Jesus had eternity in mind when he spoke of that age to come. It's, It's just simply referring to there is never any forgiveness for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's saying. Yeah. The other thing is that that's a really kind of, that's a really backwards way to get to something. Like if I say that I'm, I'm not going to give you $5 today. I'm not going to give you $5 ever. And you're like, Oh, so you're going to give me $10 tomorrow. Um, wait a second. Like, it's just, and I know that's not exactly what's happening here, but like, he's not saying forgiveness is available in the age to come. Right. He's just saying that you can't get it. Yeah. Like, and yeah. the fact that it can't be gotten doesn't mean that it can be gotten for others, just that it can't be gotten. Yeah. Like, I, I just, that's, especially on its own. Now, like, if there were other scriptures that were saying, like ways to get forgiveness in another age or indicating there was that would be a little different right but like just that alone that is a massive leap of logic that just that is so dangerous to do with something as important as eternity and salvation like i mean these are literally the most important things we can ever talk about. So like when you're taking that huge of a leap of logic, that's, that's not great. Yeah. I I agree. Um, Obviously I did a lot of studying over this beforehand. So either way though, like my first thought when I was going over this was this is going to sound like I'm supporting this, but in the end, if you are not using scripture to, help you interpret scripture i'm i'm sorry i don't i don't know how i can help you because if you're reaching for these extra biblical facts or trying to twist scripture into into your theology you're not doing what the bible said in fact you are adding to the word of god yeah and you know it's interesting i looked up the greek word there aeon i was just curious and what it's translating to, I, I mean, saying in this forever and in the forever to come doesn't even make sense in that manner. Yeah, because because that's literally what he's saying. He's saying in this forever and the forever to like, um, how well, many forevers are there? Well, here it can also be used to represent different times. But the, and that's the thing with Greek and all that, there are a lot of broad words that can be used to interpret. Whereas in 
English, we have some very specific and non-specific words. So it's so it's he's like, not using a spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, and at, but at the same time, it's like Jesus is just trying to drive home the point. It there's never any forgiveness for this. Like yeah. you cannot sin against the you cannot blaspheme the Holy Ghost. That's what he's saying. I mean, I don't understand how you make the logical leap from, well, he's saying there's never any forgiveness to this, to, oh, there's forgiveness in an age to come. For everything else. <laughs> and I'm like, hold up, pump the brakes. Yeah, turn the wheel 180 degrees because you're going down the wrong path. Yeah. Like, that is so against anything that Paul taught. And if Paul, if Paul wrote most of our new Testament, we have built a doctrine based off Paul's writings. Right. So if, and Paul even said, if anyone, whether it be an angel or myself come to you preaching any other gospel, cast them out. Don't listen to them. Don't turn away from this truth that I've, that was given to you. That that's, that's mind-boggling to me. How you make a jump from a man who literally said that it is appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment, and then make the leap to there may be forgiveness in an age to come because those two things don't e-haul. Yeah. That's my problem with it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Jesus Name News podcast this week. This is one of those episodes that just had a ton of content in it. So for the next couple weeks, and actually the next couple episodes, we are going to be splitting them and posting part two on Mondays. So catch part two of Purgatory this upcoming Monday. You do not want to miss it. It has a ton of content and a ton of scripture coming your way. Thanks for listening, guys.